This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 101. Today is June 30th, and before we get started, I want to thank all of these individuals that decided to support us either through Patreon or PayPal. So this week, we have Alex, Amy Fink, Bang Duong, Chris Ward, Dale Perrin, Donna Todd, Evan Rapagna, Gabby, George Ho, Jeffrey Errett, Justin Burton, Kirsten Warstad, Leah Gibbs, Leon Lovelace, Linda Mitchell, Matt Weaver, Ricardo Funch, and Rob all deciding to support us this past week. So thank you all so much for deciding to support the show. If you too would like to support us, you could visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report. Or you can go to humanistreport.com, but so long as you just watch the show, that's all I could ever ask or hope for. So on today's episode, first, I'll talk about the bogus FBI investigation into Bernie and Jane Sanders. And I'll also talk about how the mainstream media is undermining its own legitimacy when it comes to the Russiagate story. I'll also talk about one of the dumbest Fox News segments ever. And also, Joanne Reed, a propagandist for the Democratic Party, came to the defense of Nancy Pelosi after Democrats began calling for her ouster last week. Also in this episode, I'll give you an update on net neutrality, and I'll also give you the rundown of Trump's new FCC appointee. And additionally, Jason Chaffetz, an anti-welfare crusader, is now asking the government for a handout on behalf of himself and congressional colleagues. And finally in this episode, I will talk to David Dole, host of The Rational National, which is a new progressive show on YouTube. So all these topics will be covered in today's show. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Since early 2015, there's been allegations against Jane Sanders that during her tenure as the president of Burlington College in Vermont, she committed bank fraud by supplying a bank with misleading information on a loan application. Now, the main accuser here is the Republican equivalent of David Brock, who typically looks for any and all ways that he can smear Democratic political contenders. So first and foremost, let's understand the context, because I think that's important. So it's very clear that Bernie Sanders will be running again in 2020, most likely. So this right here, this FBI investigation that Bernie and Jane are now under, it's giving both neoliberals, Democratic neoliberals, and Republicans the opportunity to preemptively smear him and handicap his campaign in 2020 before he even announces it. So how will this impact Bernie Sanders? Well, even though it's the case that these accusations don't have any merit, it is an effective way to attack Bernie Sanders, and this is only a story all of a sudden because Bernie Sanders and Jane Sanders decided to finally hire attorneys, and second of all, the accuser found a way to tie this investigation to Bernie Sanders, so now that Bernie Sanders' name is involved, this is suddenly a national story that is making headlines in Politico and CBS News. But when it comes to this story, there's a ton of red flags. Now, as I've stated here, the individual who is the main accuser in this case, who's the main cheerleader for this case, who basically petitioned the FBI and Justice Department to investigate Jane and Bernie, is, like I said, the political equivalent of David Brock, and his name is Brady Tonsig. He is the vice chairman of the Vermont Republican Party, and also, he was the chair of Trump's presidential campaign in Vermont. 
So that says a lot. But also, Politico explains that he's constantly on alert for cases where he can slip the knife into Democratic politicians. And additionally, the rise of Bernie Sanders clearly stuck in his craw, especially given what he considered to be the lack of scrutiny Sanders enjoyed. It's probably because he's not corrupt, but they also state it was no surprise that Tansig scrutinized Jane Sanders' rise and fall at Burlington College. Now, they go on to state, on July 7th, 2014, seven days, a Vermont alternative weekly newspaper published a deeply reported piece by Alicia Fries about Burlington College's plummeting fortunes. Two weeks after Fries's piece appeared, Tonsing requested loan documents from the Vermont Educational and Health Buildings Finance Agency that had issued the 6.5 million bonds for the land. Now, they're talking about the land that Jane Sanders purchased for Burlington College while she was the president. So, Tonsig got all of these documents, he dug through them, and he found two people that were listed on the application for the loan. And on this application, it stated that these people pledged more money than they were in fact willing to donate. So, essentially, the reason why these inaccuracies are problematic is because if you want to get a loan, you have to prove that you're going to be able to pay this loan back. And the way that Jane Sanders was trying to prove that the college would be able to pay this loan back was by telling the bank that they were expecting a certain number of donations. Now, Tonsing is alleging that she lied about how much donations the college would actually be receiving. And there was also another woman who was listed as a donor who would be giving the college $1 million, but the application didn't state that that there was a stipulation to that and that the lady would only be giving this money upon the event of her death. So basically, there were a couple of inaccuracies here and Tonsig, though, is taking those inaccuracies and he's alleging that Jane Sanders purposefully cited misleading information on this application so that way she could mislead them to get this loan and that, of course, would in fact be an act of bank fraud. But remember that this isn't a loan that would personally enrich Jane or Bernie. It was for the college while she was the president, so she had nothing to gain personally from this other than improving her own legacy because, I mean, you can really debate whether or not she was an effective president while she was the president of Burlington College, but she wanted to secure her legacy, so that's what you can say was really at stake. I mean, this wasn't a loan for Jane Sanders. They weren't going to buy themselves a house or a car or a yacht with this money. It was a loan for the college, so it's dumb to commit bank fraud and, you know, be liable for something that wouldn't benefit you personally. But nonetheless, that didn't stop Tansing from waging this political witch hunt because obviously he's a Trump supporter and knowing that Trump is going to be seeking re-election in 2020 and Bernie may challenge him, He's doing everything he can to discredit Bernie ahead of the 2020 election. So, Politico explains, Brady Tonsing wrapped these figures and facts into the January 2016 letter to the U.S. attorney and FDIC requesting an investigation into what he termed apparent federal bank fraud. In March of 2016, Tonsing doubled down in another letter to federal officials. This time, he made an allegation that struck to the core of Bernie Sanders' clean government image. As a result of my initial complaint, Tonsing wrote, I was recently approached and informed that Senator Bernard Sanders' office improperly pressured People's United Bank to approve the loan application submitted by the senator's wife, Ms. Sanders. The evidence for that charge seems to be thin at best. According to sources familiar with the matter, the alleged pressure may have simply been a casual suggestion, perhaps chatter by a Sanders staffer over lunch instead of a written document or email, and though such a suggestion might still be improper, it would be difficult to prove a direct connection to the 
senator. So to me, I find this really interesting because Bernie Sanders has had a squeaky clean career for how many decades now? Since before I've been born. And all of a sudden, now that he's going to be running for president, while well, he's using his power and influence, uh, which is completely out of character for Bernie, to influence a bank to push this loan through so Jane Sanders can look better. I really think you're going to have to try harder than this. And look, there's been accusations that Bernie Sanders is corrupt before, which I've shut down because they're just complete bullshit accusations. But the problem is that this one may actually stick because since Bernie Sanders is now being accused of using his influence to push this loan through, well, now it seems as though we have a real story. And since they decided to hire attorneys, well, there's this implication that Jane and Bernie might be guilty, right? Well, actually, no. As Politico explains, hiring a lawyer is no admission of guilt, but it does speak to the potential seriousness of the federal investigation. It would be negligent for anyone involved in the matter to not retain counsel, Weaver tells Politico magazine. Charges of bank fraud, say legal experts, are not easy to prove. It requires that the act be performed knowingly, says William Lawler, a former federal prosecutor now with the law firm Vincent and Elkins. Not every mistake is going to rise to the level of a crime. So in other words, there has to be intent. But regardless, this case could still potentially be a problem because of who is in charge of the Justice Department and who's currently the president and what he has to gain by Bernie Sanders going down because of this potential FBI investigation. Politico continues, once the federal investigation concludes, the Justice Department will decide whether or not to bring charges, which some worry will give Donald Trump a chance to affect the course of action. That gives President Donald Trump a chance to affect the course of the investigation and potential for prosecution, as Trump's Department of Justice, led by Attorney General Jeff Sessions, a longtime senatorial colleague of Bernie Sanders, will make the call on whether to prosecute the wife of a senator who has been deeply critical of this president and once called him a pathological liar. For the past year and a half, Bernie and Jane Sanders have been able to brush aside questions about the matter. It has not gone away. With all sides lawyering up, the case is gaining momentum just as Jane Sanders is acquiring new power and prominence in the national progressive movement. It may all be nonsense, as the senator likes to say, but it can no longer be ignored. So I just have to pause right here for a moment and mention the irony because it's overwhelming to me. So this guy, uh, Brady Thompson, he's a Trump supporter who's accusing Bernie Sanders of using his power and influence to not personally enrich himself, like Trump's doing, but to instead benefit a college. Whereas this Trump supporter, he has someone who he supported and was the chair of the Vermont campaign of Donald Trump, who literally, there's evidence that he's using his power as president to enrich himself and push through business deals for himself in Argentina and for his daughter in China. And that's not a problem for Townsend. So look, this is what this is about. Since Donald Trump is currently under investigation and we don't know whether or not that investigation will continue up until the 2019 and 2020 uh, election cycle. Well, they're trying to come up with a critique against Bernie Sanders because you already know what the Democratic Party and Bernie Sanders will inevitably use against Trump. They'll say he's under investigation for a potential obstruction of justice. He's being sued for fraud. So they want something to kind of counter that. And if they can say, well, Bernie Sanders is also under investigation, then that's an incredibly effective tactic to use against Bernie Sanders because obviously he is Donald Trump's worst nightmare because Bernie can beat Donald Trump. And there's a reason why Donald Trump is silent about Bernie Sanders and never attacks Bernie. 
It's because he's scared shitless of Bernie Sanders. So now you have a Trump drone in Brady Tonsing doing the dirty work of President Donald Trump and pretending to care about ethical violations and corruption when he supported Donald fucking Trump, who is the king of corruption in Washington right now, when he said he was going to drain the swamp. Now, to kind of further show you where this guy's coming from, Brady Tonsing, he is an individual that championed another witch hunt that was pretty prominent, Benghazi. He's someone who pushed Benghazi, which obviously was a political witch hunt. Now, as Walker Bragman of Truth Against the Machine explains about Tonsing, he's tried to take down Senator Sanders before, filing a complaint with Vermont's Attorney General Bill Sorrell in 2016, alleging campaign finance violations. Sanders had sent out an email to supporters encouraging them to split donations between his campaign and that of another Vermont progressive, which Tonsing claims was an in-kind contribution that should have been reported. Sorrell, who had himself been the target of six similar Tonsing complaints, disagreed and declined to pursue the matter. So, it's a political witch hunt being waged by a political smear merchant akin to David Brock, and we know what his intentions are. He's trying to cripple Bernie Sanders ahead of the 2020 election. I've said it once, I'll say it again. This is a political witch hunt. But Bragman continues, Bank fraud is not a strict liability offense, meaning it requires intent, specifically intent to defraud, though not necessarily intend to defraud a bank, as the Supreme Court recently unanimously held in the 2016 case of Shaw v. United States. In other words, it is not enough if Jane submitted a loan application to the bank with incorrect information, unless of course she knew at the time that the information was false. And that makes sense because whenever you sign a legal document, or if you've ever gotten a loan, when you sign your signature, you're basically saying, I hereby uh, state that all the information is correct to the best of my knowledge. So obviously, um, they have to prove that intent was there. So most likely, nothing will come of this. And certainly, the portion that ties Bernie Sanders to corruption, using his influence to push for this loan, nothing's going to come out of that. It's just bullshit. And Bernie Sanders took the time to speak out against this obvious political witch hunt by saying, it is nonsense. But now that there is a process going on, which was initiated by Trump's campaign manager, somebody who does this all the time, has gone after a number of Democrats and progressives in this state. It would be improper at this point for me to add any more to that. And again, notice how... This investigation centers around Jane Sanders and not Bernie Sanders. Jane Sanders is not running to be the president of the United States in 2020. Bernie Sanders most likely will be. So even if it's the case that Jane Sanders comes out guilty and they press charges against her, that still means nothing about Bernie Sanders, because obviously you're not going to be able to prove that he used this power and influence to push for this loan, because that would be stupid. Why risk your job to benefit a college? I mean, that's something that doesn't specifically benefit you personally, so why would you risk your career to do that when you have a squeaky clean career? I mean, you could dig through Bernie Sanders' history, and you'll find nothing on him. The Democratic Party tried to do this, and the Republicans tried to do this, hence why they could only smear him as a communist, because they didn't know what to do, because Bernie Sanders is one of the few people in Washington, that's not corrupt. So this whole thing to me, it's it's just hypocritical because the individuals, Trump supporters and Democratic neoliberals, Hillary supporters, they supported people who were under investigation. But now that Bernie Sanders is under investigation, it's the biggest deal ever. Bring it on. That's what I got to say to Donald Trump and Brady Tonsing. Bring it on because it doesn't matter. Bernie Sanders can go in to the 2020 election cycle. If he's the Democratic Party's nominee, and still win even if he's under FBI investigation because he has one thing that Donald Trump will never have. 
policy substance. So bring it on. It's very clear that the Republican equivalent of David Brock is desperate and he's going to look for any and everything he can to demonize Bernie Sanders, but you're going to have to keep digging and do better than this. Anyone with even the smallest semblance of intelligence knows that Fox News is not news. In fact, people who watch Fox News are actually less informed than people who watch no news. And this is because Fox News isn't in the business to inform people. They serve as the propaganda wing of the Republican Party. So any and everything that they do will be to reinforce the Republican Party establishment. Now, as the Republican Party has continued to shift to the right and become more and more extreme, they've had to ramp up their misinformation campaign at Fox News to make the Republican Party seem more normal when nobody really thinks they're normal unless you are someone who consumes Fox News daily. The Republican Party is crazy. They're the most aggressive they've ever been. They are a harmful party that serves no one but their corporate donors. And as a result, Fox News, in trying to normalize Republicans, they're looking even dumber. And their stupidity was showcased in a recent segment where they discussed the recent GOP healthcare plan, which, mind you, the Senate version now has a 12% approval rating and, according to a CBO score, would leave 22 million more people uninsured than there are now. So, this is a bill... That is awful. It's a bill that can't ever come to pass because it's just harmful to the American people. So Fox News took on the impossible task. They tried to polish a turd. They tried to defend this shitty bill. And they basically tried to sell to their viewers the idea that this bill isn't actually so bad. And it's certainly not as bad as Democrats are making it out to be. And to make a long story short, in their attempt to defend this so-called healthcare plan, which actually takes healthcare away from Americans, I mean, the discussion was just batshit insane. I mean, they went completely off the rails. They are unhinged, and this will definitely go down as one of the dumbest segments Fox News has ever produced. Right. So in order for this to work, I think you need bipartisan support. I think you need Republicans and de Democrats. Don't count on it. I'm not counting on it. <laughs> but it would be nice. But it, yeah. but it would be nice. Yes. When you listen to something like this, you realize that's asking a whole heck of a lot. Take a listen to this. I know this is a sensitive issue, but I'm going to raise it. And that is that the horrible and unspeakable truth is that if this legislation were to pass, thousands of our fellow Americans every single year will die. We do know that the uh, many more people Millions, hundreds of thousands of people will die if this bill passes. One to two thousand people will die if you cut 750,000 people from, from Medicaid. So that means you're killing one to two thousand, killing them. All right, uh, uh, Ebony. That's <laughs> rational. How are we going to get to the middle here and, and fix this problem if we have Democrats? Pelosi say... Hundreds of thousands of people will die if you go with the GOP plan. Well, they obviously all read their talking, the DNC <laughs> talking points memo this morning. Um, also, quite frankly, I think Senator Sanders would be better served worrying about his own legal and <laughs> pending Absolutely. problems, quite Absolutely. frankly, uh, and really shouldn't be the messenger on this. Thousands of people, Bernie Sanders says, Pelosi says hundreds of thousands, Kennedy Schumer says, hey, you know, one to two thousand. Yeah, you know what? At least they're not employing any hyperbole at, all. at all. No <laughs> exaggeration, no hysteria. You know what the crazy thing is? We're all going to die. 
And they can't predict it. There's no way, unless they're absolutely psychic and, and have a, a party line to heaven, they don't know who's going to die or when or, or how many people. I mean, that is such a fool's errand trying to quantify something that serious and grave. They, yeah, so the segment speaks for itself. I really, I shouldn't have to say anything about it because if you watch that segment and anything that those buffoons said resonated with you, then... You might need to get your head checked because what they said was just completely stupid. So they're alleging here that it's hyperbolic to say that this will result in people dying. Well, riddle me this, geniuses. If people who currently have health insurance can no longer get health insurance as a result of this bill and they need medical attention for something and they can't get said medical attention and it's a really serious thing that they need to see a doctor for and they end up dying... Are you not entitled to blame the bill in that case? I mean, this is a ridiculous conversation to even be having. And to call it hyperbole, it's not hyperbolic. If it's happening right now in this country, there are people dying every single year because they don't have health insurance or they have health insurance and they're not able to provide proof of health insurance at the time they see a doctor. So to say that that's hyperbolic shows how out of touch they are with the general population, with the American people. They they know nothing about the struggle of everyday Americans. And I love how one of the hosts there suggested that Bernie Sanders shouldn't be the messenger here because he should be worrying about his own legal problems. So I actually like that she said this here. I just found it funny because I'm assuming that since she works at Fox News, she's actually a Trump supporter right? So you voted for someone being sued for committing fraud, who is also being investigated by the FBI for obstruction of justice, who was in violation of the emoluments clause of the constitution on the first day he was sworn in, who also was accused of sexual assault and sexual harassment by multiple women. He also uses his power as the president to enrich himself personally, and he also does favors for his donors. I mean, you're honestly going to say that Bernie Sanders is someone who has the ethical issues and not Donald Trump? Really? Is that honestly what you're doing because I love it. You're making my job easy. If you really want to compare Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump in terms of corruption, let's do that because we could be here all day. Because if you voted for the most corrupt politician in American history, the most disliked presidential nominee in American history, you have no room to talk. You work for the propaganda wing of the Republican Party, Fox News, and you are going to call out Bernie Sanders as someone who's unethical? Really? But that wasn't even the best part, and I'm going to have to quote the other host, even though you guys already heard what she said. I have to quote it because it was so absurd. She said, you know what the crazy thing is? We're all going to die. We're all going to die. <laughs> and they can't predict. There's no way unless they're absolutely psychic and have a party line to heaven. They don't know who's going to die or when or how many people. I mean, that is such a fool's errand to try to quantify something that serious and grave. So what she's basically saying here is that since people are going to die anyway, what's the point of them trying to seek out healthcare and trying to prolong their lives? Is that honestly what you're saying? <laughs> I think it is. Look, I'm not joking when I say this. That's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my entire life. This individual is getting paid potentially millions of dollars to say things that's stupid. That's like saying, well, you can't say that people are going to die if we start a war and send them off to war because there's no way you can quantify that. There's no way you can predict how many people will die or when they're going to die. Right. So I actually have to come out here for the first time ever on this podcast and explain cause and effect to someone. I have to explain cause and effect to a grown adult, which is something that we learn when we are a toddler. Yes. 
See, by doing something, you learn that your actions have consequences. If I stick my finger in an electrical outlet, I know I'm going to get electrocuted. I may not know the extent to which I'll be injured, but I know that if I am stupid enough to stick my finger in an electrical outlet, that will cause me pain. It's called cause and effect. Actions have consequences. Even though you can't necessarily predict the outcome, you can get a general sense if you're an adult, if you are intellectually competent, even just a little bit, that negative things will ensue when you do negative things. Why am I explaining cause and effect to someone that is presumably an adult, right? What, you're probably older than me, perhaps. I'm explaining cause and effect to you? Really? What is wrong with Fox News? And if there's anyone that actually heard her argument and thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense, you need to get your head checked. <laughs> that's, that's not a normal argument that normal people make. I mean, she literally said, we're all going to die someday. And the implication is that, well, what's, you know, who cares about healthcare? I wonder if that's a philosophy that she applies to herself as well, or if she only invokes that type of rhetoric when she's talking about the peasants and their need for healthcare. So if you're sick, do you just opt to not go to the doctor since you're going to die anyway? Do you not wear your seatbelt when you get into a car or look both ways when you cross the street because death is inevitable, so there's no need to worry about preventing the inevitable, right? I mean, do you do that? This segment is a perfect illustration that just, it, it gives us a glimpse into how the elites view the poor. They don't care. You know, these poor people, they're going to die anyway, so fuck them. Who cares? I've got my health insurance through Fox News, my job, and it's lovely, so why should I worry about these peasants? I mean, who cares if 22 million more people go uninsured, and obviously that will lead to problems. I mean, don't even say that people will die. That's just, that's irrational. You're being hyperbolic. Fox News is unhinged, and this is honestly, like, I don't even know what to say. This is such a stupid segment that I think I lost a few IQ points when I watched it, and I had to watch it multiple times to prepare for the show, and I wish I didn't do that because, wow, that that's just complete and utter stupidity. The mainstream media has had a pretty difficult week when it comes to their legitimacy because after promoting the Russiagate story for months uncritically... It's finally catching up to them, and they're now finally being scrutinized for their reckless coverage. So, in an article for The Intercept, Glenn Greenwald writes, Three prominent CNN journalists resigned Monday night after the network was forced to retract and apologize for a story linking Trump ally Anthony Scaramucci to a Russian investment fund under congressional investigation. That article, like so much Russia reporting from the U.S. media, was based on a single anonymous source, and now the network cannot vouch for the accuracy of its central claims. In announcing the resignation of the three journalists, Thomas Frank, who wrote the story, not the same Thomas Frank who wrote What's the Matter with Kansas, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Eric Lichblau, recently hired away from the New York Times, and Lex Harris, head of a new investigative unit, CNN said that standard editorial processes were not followed when the article was published. The resignations follow CNN's Friday night retraction of the story in which it apologized to Scaramucci. Now that states, on June 22nd, CNN published a story connecting Anthony Scaramucci with investigations into the Russian Direct Investment Fund. That story did not meet CNN's editorial standards and has been retracted. Links to the story have been disabled. CNN apologizes to Mr. Scaramucci. But CNN is hardly alone when it comes to embarrassing retractions regarding Russia. 
Over and over, major U.S. media outlets have published claims about the Russia threat that turned out to be completely false, always in the direction of exaggerating the threat and or inventing incriminating links between Moscow and the Trump circle. In virtually all cases, those stories involved evidence-free assertions that anonymous sources that these media outlets uncritically treated as fact, only for it to be revealed that they were entirely false. Several of the most humiliating of these episodes have come from the Washington Post. On December 30th, the paper published a blockbuster frightening scoop that immediately and predictably went viral and generated massive traffic. Russian hackers, the paper claimed based on anonymous sources, had hacked into the U.S. electricity grid through a Vermont utility. And of course, that turned out to be false. Now, a few weeks later, C-SPAN made big news when it announced that its network had been interrupted by RT programming. They stated, This afternoon, the online feed for C-SPAN was briefly interrupted by RT programming. We are currently investigating and troubleshooting this occurrence, as RT is one of the networks who we regularly monitor. We are operating under the assumption that it was an internal routing issue. If that changes, we will certainly let you know. That led numerous media outlets such as Fortune to claim that this occurred due to Russian hacking, yet that too turned out to be totally baseless and Fortune was forced to renounce the claim. In the same time period, December of 2016, The Guardian published a story by reporter Ben Jacobs claiming that WikiLeaks and its founder, Julian Assange, had quote, long had a close relationship with the Putin regime. That claim, along with several others in the story, was fabricated and The Guardian was forced to append a retraction to the story. Perhaps the most significant Russia falsehood came from CrowdStrike, the firm hired by the DNC to investigate the hack of its email servers. Again, in the same time period, December of 2016, the firm issued a new report accusing Russian hackers of nefarious activities involving the Ukrainian army, which numerous outlets, including, of course, the Washington Post, uncritically hyped. Yet, that story also fell short. In March, the firm revised and retracted statements it used to buttress claims of Russian hacking during last year's American presidential election campaign. After several experts questioned its claims and CrowdStrike walked back key parts of its Ukraine report. So we have multiple stories here that have proven to be false. I mean, we have mainstream news outlets who took these stories from anonymous sources. They didn't do their research enough. They accepted the claims of these anonymous sources uncritically, and they ended up embarrassing themselves. So you see a trend here. They're jumping on this Russia bandwagon because one, it's an easy way to attack Trump, and two, most importantly, this gets them ratings. But that's not all. So one of the main claims of the Russiagate story has been recently retracted by the New York Times. So according to to Consortium News, they add that the New York Times has finally admitted that one of the favorite Russiagate canards that all 17 U.S. intelligence agencies concurred on the assessment of Russian hacking of Democratic emails is false. Now, in the retraction for the New York Times, they state a White House memo article on Monday about President Trump's deflections and denials about Russia referred incorrectly to the source of an intelligence assessment that said Russia orchestrated hacking attacks during last year's presidential election. The assessment was made by four intelligence agencies, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Central Intelligence Agency, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the National Security Agency. The assessment was not approved by all 17 organizations in the American intelligence community. So for months now, the Democratic Party has been labeling anyone who doesn't jump on board with this Russia uh, hacking conspiracy theory uh, as people who are shills for Trump or shills for Russia specifically 
because 17 American intelligence agencies have determined that they did in fact hack into the DNC's and John Podesta's emails, but now actually it wasn't all 17. It was four, and you know, the oddest part about the story is that they've been talking about the 17 intelligence agencies for months, and they only decided to issue a correction for that on June 25th. So, this is completely reckless because one, it encourages Donald Trump and both political parties to ramp up tensions between the United States and Russia, and what they're doing is empowering Donald Trump. I mean, after all these claims, false claims about Russia have been proven to be just complete bullshit, now Donald Trump, when he actually says, you know, all these stories about me, they're false, now there's legitimacy to Donald Trump. The media delegitimized themselves and they propped up Donald Trump, so his claim about CNN being fake news now actually has some credence. Category you are fake news. So good job in your effort to promote hysteria and be alarmist when it comes to Russia, when the Cold War's been over for decades now, in your effort to sensationalize this story, all for ratings, you've made Donald Trump exponentially more powerful. And when he talks about media bias against him specifically, now people are more inclined to believe him because of your reckless behavior. Good job, CNN. Good job, New York Times. Good job, The Guardian. I mean, what you're doing here is unacceptable. Your job is to scrutinize this information for the American people, but you're accepting claims from anonymous sources uncritically, and then you're reporting to the American people that these are facts, when they're not facts, they're claims from anonymous sources. Again, if they if they actually believed in what they were saying, they would reveal their names. So, this whole thing is really frustrating to me. Now, that's just kind of one portion of the story. This article that Glenn Greenwald wrote, which is just fantastic, it's one portion of the story because a lot of people are talking about James O'Keefe's video from Project Veritas, where basically he allegedly got a CNN producer on tape saying that they're doing all this for ratings and it's bullshit. And then he also apparently caught Van Jones of CNN saying that this whole Russia thing is just a nothing burger. But let me say this. Uh, James O'Keefe, like the mainstream media, he is very disingenuous and he does have an agenda. So I don't trust anything that James O'Keefe says. And furthermore, when it comes to the CNN executive admitting that they're doing this for ratings, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. That's something that's been obvious to all of us who are paying attention. And Van Jones, that honestly isn't that big of a story to me because just a couple of days prior to that video being released, Van Jones actually released a video talking about how he doesn't believe there's going to be much evidence that Donald Trump did in fact collude with Russia. I am glad that there is a Russia investigation and I hope they get to the bottom of it. I think Democrats are fooling ourselves if we think that something's going to come out of this investigation and somehow it's going to end the Trump presidency and make everything better. It's, unless there's a real smoking gun, which there's probably not, it's just going to be a big old mess. Meanwhile, we're not talking about jobs, not talking about poverty, not talking about solutions, not talking about the addiction crisis. Let's talk about our stuff. So the James O'Keefe portion, um, that portion, it means nothing to me, honestly. These retractions and corrections issued by numerous mainstream media outlets, that's what we should focus on. Because again, James O'Keefe, he has zero legitimacy whatsoever. He likes to take the footage and edit it in the most disingenuous way possible. So that way he takes people out of context. So I don't believe anything that James O'Keefe is selling. And furthermore, what he allegedly revealed is nothing new. So if you're progressive, anything that you see released from Project Veritas, take it with a grain of salt. But we don't need 
Project Veritas and James O'Keefe to confirm what we already know. These retractions lend credence to the claim that progressives have been saying forever that this Russia story, even if it is true, uh, you're reporting it irresponsibly, you're being reckless in the way you're sensationalizing it, and furthermore, if you want to attack Donald Trump, do it in a way that will actually stick. But they continue to harp on Russia when that is not the most effective way to attack Trump. So all these stories here confirms that the media has an agenda, and their agenda is to make money, and this story... <laughs> It's making them so much money. Think about all the viewers that Rachel Maddow picked out. We need evidence. Extraordinary claims require evidence. I shouldn't have to say this to the media who's supposed to be the real journalist, but again, we have to say it. So anything that you hear from the mainstream media, you shouldn't just accept it as gospel. You need to be critical and critical of everyone who has a large platform, myself included. So, um, yeah, their behavior has been reckless, and I'm glad that finally people are holding them accountable and they're embarrassing themselves as a result of their terribly irresponsible coverage of the Russiagate story. If you're a political party that's been wiped out at every single level of government over the course of the last decade, what do you do? You reevaluate what you've done wrong, and then you try to change it. Now, as someone who consistently talks about the need to reform in different ways— one of the main reasons preventing the Democratic Party from changing in a positive way and appealing to progressives again is their lack of a leadership change. They elected Senator Chuck Schumer to be the minority leader in the Senate, and then they re-elected Nancy Pelosi recently to be the House minority leader. And these are things that you just can't do if you actually want to appeal to new voters and appeal to people that you lost over the course of the last eight years. And furthermore, when you elect someone like Tom Perez as the DNC chair, who has never won an election and who is a corporate tool, then good luck trying to win. So what we need to do now is we need a leadership change. That's what you want to do if you're a Democrat that wants to win. However, Nancy Pelosi after she has received numerous calls for her resignation, is remaining defiant, and she is refusing to step down. So Politico explains, a defiant House minority leader, Nancy Pelosi, on Thursday, said she has no plans to step down anytime soon, despite calls from some rank-and-file Democrats for new leadership and at least one meeting to plot to replace her. Pelosi spent a good chunk of her weekly news conference defending her longtime perch atop the Democratic caucus, at times even mocking colleagues within her party who have in recent days said it's time for her to step aside. I respect any opinion that my members have, but my decision about how long I stay is not up to them, Pelosi told reporters. My caucus is overwhelmingly supportive of me. I am a master legislator, Pelosi declared. I am a strategic, politically astute leader. My leadership is recognized by many around the country. That is why I am able to attract the financial support that I do, which is essential to our election, I am sad to say. But as Nancy Pelosi was defending her status in the caucus, a group of Democrats were already planning a secret afternoon meeting to talk about potentially trying to replace her. A dozen Democrats attended the meeting out of nearly 20 members invited. Afterward, leaders of the group said no decisions have been made about what to do next, but that support is growing within the caucus to topple Pelosi. Among the Democrats who attended the confab were Congressional Black Caucus Chairman Cedric Richmond, Tony Cardenas, a member of House Democratic Leadership, and Representatives Amy Barra, Philemon Vela, Ruben Gallego, and Delegate Stacy Plaskett. So we have 
a very small portion of Democrats who are doing the reasonable thing. They're trying to actually be introspective, which which is what the Democratic Party has been needing to do for a while. And they think, you know, maybe it's time we get some new leadership. We put a new face on the Democratic Party and we really move towards reforming the party. Uh, and you have Nancy Pelosi basically telling them not just no, but throwing up the fact in their face that they can't do anything to replace her. She's going to stay there. She's going to remain defiant. And even though she's going down, she doesn't care if she's taking the party with her. And when I say going down, I'm talking about the toxic brand that she represents. I mean, Tim Ryan recently stated correctly so that the Democratic Party's brand is worse than Trump's. And that is correct. And in large part, it's due to corporate neoliberal Democrats like Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton, Tom Perez. And mind you, Tom Perez is also receiving pressure to step down as well because they recently had their worst fundraising month since 2003. And now it's the case that Democrats are calling for him to resign as well, although no member of Congress has spoken publicly about Tom Perez resigning. So we have people in leadership positions that are incompetent and they are refusing to step down. Well, uh, <laughs> too bad. You need to step aside. And you're lucky that you still have your job in the first place. I don't I don't get how Nancy Pelosi was reelected to be the leader of the House for the Democrats after what she oversaw. I mean, under her leadership, Democrats marched off a cliff and lost nearly a thousand legislative seats across the country. How could you not just resign in shame? And yet you have a tiny portion of people saying maybe she should resign. And she's saying absolutely not. How dare you ever even ask? I am a master legislator. Well, one, Nancy, you are embarrassing yourself. Nobody talks about themselves that way unless they're a huge narcissist. And I know that since you're a multi-multi-millionaire and you have hundreds of millions of dollars, I believe she's worth a little over a hundred million. So, I mean, clearly you have an inflated ego, but this isn't about your ego. This is about putting forward a plan that will make Democrats win. And the only plan that will make Democrats electorally viable again is a progressive plan to go in the direction of Bernie Sanders. He's given you this blueprint. It's just this huge gift on what to do to not only raise money, but to run a campaign that's incredibly successful. And people will retort by saying, Mike, but he lost. That's true. He technically did lose, but he nearly won a rigged primary. And he overcame a 60-point deficit and nearly defeated a political behemoth like Hillary Clinton after the media gave him zero coverage. What he did was unprecedented. So, yes, he has, in fact, given you the blueprint. And there's a reason why progressive Democrats across the country, like Rob Quist and James Thompson, even though they lost their races, uh, they improved the Democratic Party's chances in their districts. They did better than Hillary Clinton, unlike neoliberal shills like John Ossoff, and it's because they ran progressive campaigns. Maybe if the Democratic Party didn't surrender those seats, they could have actually won. But the Democratic Party, they're incompetent, namely because they're crippled by the incompetent leaders that they have. Nancy Pelosi, Tom Perez. Again, Tom Perez, he has not won an election ever. And yet, we have him as the head of the Democratic Party, of the DNC. So, the takeaway is that if Democrats actually do want to win, then Nancy Pelosi and Tom Perez and Chuck Schumer, all these incompetent leaders need to step aside and allow the progressive wing to take over because we are the ones with the winning strategy because we are promoting populist ideas that are majoritarian policy positions, meaning a majority of the country supports what we're talking about, Medicare for all.
raising the minimum wage. These are things that we're promoting because they're popular and because we believe in them. So it's time you get on board with that. And, you know, the Democratic Party, they can't get on board with that unless their leaders step down who have been dragging them down. So you can remain defiant, Nancy Pelosi, and, you know, even Tom Perez. But that doesn't mean we're not going to stop calling for you to resign because it's the right thing to do. And it's the only thing to do if you actually want to stop losing. After John Ossoff's defeat in Georgia's 6th Congressional District, there's been a number of Democrats in Congress that have called for the resignation of Nancy Pelosi, citing the obvious fact that her name is toxic for the Democratic Party's brand. Now, it's not just that Nancy Pelosi is a toxic figure among conservative and Republican voters. She's actually quite disliked among the Democratic Party and progressives as well, because she represents everything wrong with the Democratic Party establishment. She is bought off by special interests. She refuses to get on board with single-payer health care, which a majority of the Democratic Party base wants. And she's become an obstacle to progressive policies, yet she continues to remain the leader of the so-called liberal opposition party when she's not liberal she's a centrist at best but she's actually quite conservative on a number of issues so she is not the person who needs to be leading the resistance against donald trump so the time for nancy pelosi to go has been long overdue However, of course, the second largest cheerleader for the Democratic Party quickly rushed to her defense. You want me to sing my praises? Is that what you're saying? Why should I? Well, I'm a a master legislator. I am a, a, a strategic, politically astute leader. They will always make a target. Senator Reid was a target. Senator Daschle was a target. Tip O'Neill was a target. I am a target. But I think I'm worth the trouble, quite frankly. Go ahead, girl. Go ahead, girl. Go ahead, girl. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi reminded haters and critics of her credentials on Thursday after a number of Democrats called for her to step aside after her starring role in Republican tack ads against John Ossoff led some to conclude that she was to blame for his defeat in Georgia. You see these commercials that tie these candidates to Leader Pelosi uh, week in and week out. You got to beat the Republican and you got to carry this very toxic Democratic brand on your back, too. That's a tough thing to ask a, a candidate running for Congress. It seems as if Republicans have mastered the art of the Jedi mind trick. Because on the subject of Nancy Pelosi's leadership, Democrats are suddenly sounding a lot like Republicans. Take, for instance, this guy back in 2010. Are we going to fire Pelosi? Michael Steele, how did you manage to trick Democrats into adopting exactly that view of Nancy Pelosi and saying that because y'all said she is a zombie hoarding demon who's enormous and giant floating over the cities, that they should drop her as their leader? It's the art of the brand. (laughs) First of all, I can't not touch on how Nancy Pelosi referred to herself as, quote, a master legislator and a strategic, politically astute leader. That is a really strange way to refer to yourself. But regardless if those things are true and you are good at pushing bills through Congress, like the Affordable Care Act, she was instrumental in pushing that through Congress. The fact is that you're a multimillionaire worth more than $100 million and you are painfully out of touch with the collective Democratic Party voting base. You are an obstacle to progress. 
So the things we want, you're saying, no, we can't move in that direction. But getting to Joanne Reed, she's implying that Democrats were somehow tricked by Republicans like Michael Steele because he was one of the main Republicans who were demonizing Nancy Pelosi over the years. And Joanne Reed argues that Democrats who are calling for Nancy Pelosi's ousting are actually sounding a lot like Republicans because that's what Republicans also want. No, Joy, you have it completely backwards. The people calling for Nancy Pelosi's resignation, myself included, we don't like Nancy Pelosi because she sounds like a Republican. Case in point. Do you feel like the move for Democrats now is to make single-payer a plank in the 2018 platform? No. I don't. And when it comes to Democrats sounding like Republicans, I've got another one for you, Joy. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. See, Joy, those are Democrats that sound like Republicans. You are a Democrat that sounds like a Republican because you attack progressives consistently and you only support neoliberal centrist to conservative candidates like Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton. So she goes on, though, nonetheless, to suggest that we're not thinking for ourselves here. We're not against Nancy Pelosi because of her corporatism and her basically stopping any and all attempts for us to fight for a single payer. She insists that we are against Nancy Pelosi because we've been duped by the Republican Party. I mean, the ordinary people, Joe, probably do not know who Nancy Pelosi is. Let's just be honest. People don't. Oh, that's not true. No, but ordinary people may not. But the Republicans have gotten Democrats convinced right. that every person on the street is walking around in terror of Nancy Pelosi, is, including this guy, Tim Ryan, who was is wants Nancy's job. Let's be right. honest. He wants Pelosi's he ran job. For it and he lost. And he lost. Ah, so. Tim Ryan is politically ambitious, and that's why he's attacking Nancy Pelosi. And look, maybe that's the case, but if you have a leader who saw the Democratic Party's march off of a cliff, who oversaw their defeat in nearly 1,000 legislative seats across the country, then... I think it's pretty legitimate to question whether or not the party needs new leadership. I mean, that's what you do. If you keep losing, you question what you're doing wrong, and leadership is usually the first one to go. I mean, questioning Nancy Pelosi's leadership is something that is reasonable to do if you actually want to win, but nonetheless... Joy talks about how frustrated she is that Democratic lawmakers would quickly come to denounce their own and call for the resignation of their own leader. Now, Joyanne Reed here is going to state in this next clip, ironically so, how much she doesn't like the fact that Democrats are willing to attack other Democrats. If there was a Republican Nancy Pelosi, they would fight like hell. They would fight you in the street if you said anything bad about her. They have defended guys who beat up reporters. They have defended guys who made comments about legitimate rape. They will defend their people. They've got people that have gone down in sex scandals and then run for office with the full support of their party. One thing you've got to give Republicans, they don't allow you to go around beating up their people. They defend their people. Why are Democrats, they're men, well, they're yes. men. But why are, de why are Democrats so quick to throw their own people under the bus? I don't know, Joy. How could someone supposedly on the left throw their own people under the bus and bash them at every chance they get and imply that they're moochers and they're Bernie bros and responsible for gun violence? I mean, what kind of a monster would do that, Joy? Who could do such a horrible thing? But we really get into the main implication here with this next clip, and you know what's coming. It's inevitable. We don't dislike Nancy Pelosi because of her corporatism. 
Can you guess what the reason is going to be cited for in this next clip? It's because we're sexist. That's the implication. We don't like Nancy Pelosi because we're sexist. Would you be surprised, Joan, if the next thing we hear from progressives is, oh my God, Elizabeth Warren needs to stand aside. She is now a target. She cannot run for president. She must stand down. She's too angry. No, and I I don't really think there's a a coincidence that we're talking about women, including Hillary Clinton. Exactly. Uh, And and so there's also this subtle, the, the whole battle in the party right now, which is a false battle in my opinion, but it's there between identity politics so-called yes. and class politics that's being fought here too but in ways that people won't say because Pelosi is associated with gay marriage being from San Francisco but also being staunchly for it she's associated with feminism she's associated with these things that certain elements of the party think should be downplayed to appeal to white men white you know rather than you- focusing on the base of our party which is women and particularly yeah. women of color So Joan Walsh doesn't really think it's a coincidence that we're talking about women exclusively here, including Hillary Clinton, even though they're the ones that brought up Elizabeth Warren's name, for example. She also states that there's a false battle between identity politics and class politics, and certain elements of the party want to downplay identity politics, so that way the party can appeal more to white men. So with that statement alone, Joan Walsh proved that she is completely out of touch. There's no battle between identity politics and class politics. Those are not mutually exclusive things. The problem that we have with your use of identity politics is that you use identity politics to smear progressives and you use identity politics to the detriment of class politics. They think that because Tom Perez is the first Latino DNC chairman or that the new Californian Democratic Party leader, for example, is gay, that that's enough for those minority groups when that's not even the case at all. A gay corporatist or a Latino corporatist isn't going to represent marginalized minorities better than a straight white male just because he's gay or Latino. Just getting people descriptive representation means nothing if you're not actually going to fight for economic justice on behalf of those disadvantaged groups. So the inherent problem with their exclusive focus on identity politics, keyword here on exclusive focus, is that as a gay man, they pretend to support me. They'll say, well, you know, we support your right to marry, but they're only accepting one portion of my humanity and they're denying other portions of it. So I say, you know, I also have a right to healthcare. But yet, we have people like Nancy Pelosi, who's supposedly an ally to the LGBT community, who is stifling any attempt of Democrats to push forward with a single-payer system when that would benefit people, particularly socioeconomically disadvantaged gay people and transgender people. So they think that they're on the right side of history and they're looking out for the rights of marginalized groups, but they're still depriving marginalized groups of economic justice by doing the bidding of their corporate donors and this is the problem their corporate donors will only loosen the leash just enough so that way corporate democrats can support something like gay marriage but when it comes to extending health care to gay people or african americans in the form of single payer well their donors won't let them do that so identity politics offers democrats a convenient way to pay lip service to us and pretend like they're on our side when behind the scenes they're actually doing the bidding of their donors while pretending to be an ally to disadvantaged marginalized groups and they couldn't care less about us in actuality, identity politics and class politics are inextricably linked. Getting a first woman president elected doesn't do anything for regular women if that woman isn't actually going to fight for economic justice for women or fight for the rights of women abroad and not bomb them in foreign countries. But they don't get this. They don't get this at all. And they use identity politics as a way to smear us and slander us since they don't want to debate us on the merits of our argument. They just want to say, you know what? I think that these Bernie bros dislike Nancy Pelosi not because of her policies or the policies she stopping us from pushing uh, from moving forward with but because she's a woman and they just don't like women they don't like seeing women in powerful positions is that so well 
How do you deal with the fact that most of us voted for Jill Stein, we support Tulsi Gabbard for president in 2020, and we support Tulsi Gabbard being promoted to Nancy Pelosi's position? I mean, how do you reconcile that? And when it comes to shutting down debate, they're literally doing this right now. They're implying that we're sexist because we dislike Nancy Pelosi, when she's disliked because she's a neoliberal corporate shill who's blocking single-payer healthcare, which would help all marginalized groups that these Democratic Party hacks pretend to care about so much. So what they're doing here in this segment is rich-splaining. They're patting marginalized minorities on the head and they're saying, look, we care about you. We're fighting for you. When they don't actually give a damn about marginalized groups, people of color, LGBT people, immigrants, they don't. But Joanne Reed doubled down on her sexism hypothesis with an article that she wrote for the Daily Beast titled Leave Nancy Pelosi Alone, where she compares opposition to Nancy Pelosi to birtherism. I'm not even joking. So she states the anti-Pelosi campaign worked because it played on certain voters' eagerness to demonize a woman of a certain age and a level of ambition, just as birtherism worked on those who are freaked out by a black man with a foreign-sounding name. Again, Joy, we don't not support Nancy Pelosi because Republicans planted that seed in our heads. We don't like Nancy Pelosi because she's a corporate tool. She takes money from the health insurance industry and then refuses to support a single-payer healthcare system. That's the reason why we don't like her. It has nothing to do with her gender or her sex. It has nothing to do with who she is as a person. These attacks we are launching against Nancy Pelosi are not ad hominem by any stretch of the imagination. We are citing policy differences and how she is refusing to listen to a majority of the Democratic Party base. And yet, Joanne Reed wants to talk about Democrats who sound like Republicans. That's what we're saying. We don't like Democrats who sound like Republicans, hence why progressives are trying to move the party to the left in the right direction, in the progressive direction. And that's what would help them win. So if you truly care about the Democratic Party, then you should allow constructive criticism and this debate to take place. I mean, Nancy Pelosi has been the leader since 2006. It's time for new leadership. And the fact that she lost almost a thousand seats across the country or that Democrats lost that much seats under her leadership proves that we're right, not you, Joy. Recently, Representative Jason Chaffetz of Utah announced that he would not be seeking re-election in 2018, and we now know why that's the case. It's because rather than being a politician, he's choosing to be a full-time propagandist for politicians instead, and according to the Huffington Post, he's now going to work for Fox News and Fox Business News where he'll most likely make millions of dollars per year. So he'll go from making 174000 per year as a member of Congress to potentially millions per year. He's getting not just a promotion, but a raise as well. However, being someone who was a former congressman and knowing the struggle, he decided to speak out on behalf of his colleagues and decided to call for a raise on their behalf. So the Hill reports just days before he resigns from Congress, Representative Jason Chaffetz said Monday that the House and Senate lawmakers should receive a $2,500 per month housing allowance, something he explained would help ease housing costs for members who can't afford two mortgages or rents. I really do believe Congress would be much better served if there was a housing allowance for members of Congress, Chaffetz told The Hill in an interview in his Capitol office, where he sleeps whenever he's in Washington. In today's climate, nobody's going to suggest or vote for a pay raise, but you shouldn't have to be among the wealthiest of Americans to serve properly in Congress. <laughs> So even though he's not saying he wants their salary to be increased, 
he's calling for a salary increase effectively because he's saying, well, you know, if they're only making $174,000 a year, which is just chump change, they should get a raise. It should be, you know, an extra $30,000 per year, which adds up to $204,000 per year. And then, then they would be able to adequately afford housing. Now, for him, he, he knows the struggle. The struggle is real for these congressmen and women because Jason Chaffetz, I mean, he only is worth $5.6 million. So these are tough times if you are a member of Congress. No, now, never mind the fact that when it comes to welfare, he thinks that you should pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you're making chump change. And furthermore, when it comes to healthcare, he has some pretty strong views about that as well when it comes to us peasants. Americans have choices and they've got to make a choice. And so maybe rather than getting that new iPhone that they just love and they want to go spend hundreds of dollars on that, maybe they should invest it in their own healthcare. Yeah, you stupid peasants. Don't you know that if you just stop spending a couple hundred dollars once every couple of years on a new iPhone that you'd be able to afford health insurance? I mean, it's only health insurance. How much could it cost? $10? I mean, it's one banana, Michael. What could it cost? $10? You've never actually set foot in a supermarket, have you? The hypocrisy here is overwhelming. So if it comes to the poor and they ask for health care, which is a human right, well then, you know, they're being fiscally irresponsible and they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but when it comes to rich congressmen and women, I mean, people like Nancy Pelosi, who are worth over $100 million, then they should actually get this housing allowance because it's so difficult for them. They they don't want to have to fly back and forth to Washington, D.C. and whatnot, so they have to sleep in their offices. I mean, how awful is that? So... <laughs> This is just unbelievable to me. This guy is shameless. And when it comes to my opinion on this, do I do I support uh, the housing allowance for members of Congress? No. And it's because members of Congress have choices. They've got to make a choice. Rather than spending hundreds of dollars on that new iPhone they just love, maybe they need to invest in their own housing. Americans have choices, and they've got to make a choice. And so maybe rather than getting that new iPhone, rather than getting that new iPhone, rather than getting that new iPhone, that they just love and they want to go spend hundreds of dollars on that, maybe they should invest it in their own health care. You're so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. You are stupid. As you all know, the FCC recently voted to roll back Title II net neutrality regulations, which would basically ruin the internet. But before these rules are solidified, they are required to hear from the public for a number of months before later making a final vote on this towards the end of the year. Now, the thing about this comment system is that even though we're allowed to submit complaints stating that we're against the FCC's pro-corporate agenda, there's also thousands upon thousands of fake comments being filed on behalf of the industry using the industry's talking points with our identities claiming that they support Ajit Pai's agenda, and that's not acceptable. So what's happening here is AstroTurf. Now, the thing about these false comments using our identities fraudulently so, mind you, is that the FCC should be investigating it so that way when they listen to the feedback that they're getting from the public, it's genuine feedback. It's not feedback based on shills or bots or trolls from the industry, but they're not doing that. In fact, Ajit Pai has been completely silent on these fake comments that they're getting. So you have the overwhelming majority in favor of net neutrality and they're submitting comments. Again, there's been millions of comments submitted supporting net neutrality. And then you have all of these comments that are just flooding the FCC and 
Ajit Pai is doing nothing about it. Now, I think that in order to understand just how egregious this is, you need the context. So a couple weeks ago, I actually did a comprehensive breakdown of these comments and what was happening and just how egregious it was. Now, one of my viewers named Anissa submitted two comments to the FCC. The first one was submitted on May 13th and she strongly encouraged the FCC to support net neutrality. She then submitted a second comment in the same month, also explaining unequivocally how she does not approve of FCC chairman's agenda. So with these two comments, we know where Anissa stands. She supports net neutrality. And she is vehemently opposed to Ajit Pai's corporate agenda. But yet, on May 11th, curiously enough, Anissa realized that a phony comment was submitted on her behalf using a fake address. And this comment is against net neutrality. Now, it states the unprecedented regulatory power of the Obama administration imposed on the Internet is smothering innovation, damaging the American economy and obstructing job creation. I urge the Federal Communications Commission to end the bureaucratic regulatory overreach of the Internet known as Title II and restore the bipartisan light touch regulatory consensus that enabled the Internet to flourish for more than 20 years. The plan currently under consideration at the FCC to repeal Obama's Title II power grab is a positive step forward and will help to promote a truly free and open internet for everyone. Now, let me be clear. This is not Anissa's opinion. This is a comment filled with lies and talking points straight from the telecommunications industry. Keeping the internet free and open is the way it's been for 20 years. There was no change in 2015. The only change was to vote to solidify net neutrality and making it a utility regulated under, under Title II of the Communications Act of 1934, made net neutrality the law of the land forever. But since we see fake comments like this, which some refer to as Comcastro turf, many people are inclined to believe that internet service providers like Comcast or Verizon are actually behind this phenomenon because, I mean, this comment includes their talking points. Now, unfortunately, Anissa isn't the only person whose identity is being used to support the agenda of the likes of Comcast and Verizon and AT&T. So wrestling superstar John Cena apparently filed one comment on May 9th and 12 more on May 11th and conspicuously it includes the exact same language used in Anissa's false complaint word for word. Now note that most of these complaints filed under John Cena's name were filed on May 11th which is the same day a false complaint was filed under Anissa's name. Now additionally using the same exact wording and date Barack Obama filed an anti-net neutrality comment allegedly where he lambasts the regulatory overreach of his own administration. That's hilarious. Also on May 8th, former FCC chairman Tom Wheeler had a complaint filed on his behalf when he voted on the rules that Ajit Pai is currently trying to roll back. And another noteworthy mention that had FCC complaints filed on their behalf includes Jesus Christ using, again, the same talking points. Now, besides celebrities and biblical characters, there's even dead people that have had complaints filed on their behalf, and you guessed it, using talking points straight from internet service providers. So clearly, these comments are fake. There's thousands of them now. We really don't know how much there is, but we can anticipate that there is a thousand at least, probably more along the lines of 10,000. And what's most likely producing all of these comments are bots. I don't know where they're getting that information, uh, but they're getting people's names and they're filing false complaints on the behalf of people that actually support net neutrality. So that's what I talked about at the beginning of June, and the FCC is now refusing to address it. So 
There's a very clear reason why Ajit Pai and the FCC don't want to address these fake comments. It's because they like these fake comments. These fake comments are clearly originating from the industry since they're using talking points directly from the industry. And we also know that the industry has infiltrated the Republican Party because they're literally supplying Republican lawmakers and bureaucrats with talking points that they use to either bash net neutrality or mislead the public about net neutrality. So with all these comments here, Ajit Pai can say, well, look, we took feedback from the public and we've heard out both sides and it seems as though there's more anti-net neutrality comments than there are pro-net neutrality comments so we're gonna have to do the democratic thing and listen to these people when these people are not people they're bots these are fake comments that are using people's identities and i don't know how they're getting them but they're fake they're also using the identities obviously of celebrities and dead people and it's it's wrong this is astroturf it's when politicians or political organizations they do something to make it seem as though the grassroots are in favor of something when they're not really in favor of something. So make no mistake about it, Ajit Pai and the FCC will use these fake comments to prove their point that the public doesn't actually support net neutrality when that's false. If you actually explain what net neutrality is to the American people, they support it overwhelmingly. If you don't support net neutrality, you're basically allowing Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T, I mean some of the most hated companies in the country, to take advantage of you and screw you over even more than they're already doing. I mean, net neutrality hurts the consumer, it hurts innovation, it hurts businesses, small businesses on the internet, and it's a way for Comcast and Verizon to shut down competition and censor information, even political information, that could harm democracy. Imagine if, you know, someone like Bernie Sanders, who rails against Comcast, uh, was trying to run for a political position under no net neutrality regulations. Comcast could just censor internet around Bernie Sanders, for example. So this this is unacceptable, and they're refusing to look into this, again, because they like these fake comments. So it's not acceptable. We now need to not just pressure the FCC to not go forward with their plans to kill net neutrality, but we also need to tell them to investigate these fake comments because it's... It's not acceptable. They're trying to give us the impression that the public is more in favor of their pro-corporate agenda than they really are. Nobody supports your agenda, Ajit. Nobody who understands what net neutrality is, that is, supports your agenda. Donald Trump is about to appoint someone to the FCC that may be the final nail in net neutrality's coffin because this individual is a complete shill for the industry. And in fact, he may be more pro-corporate than even Ajit Pai. So according to Lauren Williams of Think Progress, she explains that President Donald Trump has nominated the FCC's general counsel, Brendan Carr, to be the agency's third Republican commissioner, a move that could ensure the end of net neutrality regulations. Recode first reported the nomination, which the White House confirmed. Carr was previously a telecom lawyer at the conservative-leaning Washington, D.C. law firm, Wiley Rain, where he represented major companies such as AT&T and Verizon. He has also worked with telecom lobbying groups, U.S. Telecom and CTIA, which represents wireless communications companies, Recode reported. Carr was also once an aide to current FCC chairman Ajit Pai, the LA Times reported. 
Pi has initiated a rollback of the 2015 net neutrality rules that prohibit companies from prioritizing content and access in the form of fast and slow lanes for a cost. Carr's nomination wasn't Trump's first attempt to fill the two vacant seats left in the FCC's five-member board. The president previously nominated Jessica Rosenworcel, a former Democratic FCC commissioner under the Obama administration that Congress failed to confirm her reappointment before it expired in 2016. If confirmed, Carr would join two other Republicans, FCC Chair Pai and Commissioner Michael O'Reilly. Mignon Clyburn is the only Democrat on the commission and her term is almost up. The White House is considering re-nominating Rosenworcel, but hasn't indicated whether it would do the same for Clyburn. Carr's ties to Big Telecom could tip the upcoming net neutrality vote in favor of deregulation, since Pai's proposal to roll back net neutrality rules will likely pass along party lines, as it did for Democrats in 2015. Pai has supported Carr's nomination, saying he would be an added voice at the commission in efforts to reduce senseless regulations and install sound policymaking, the LA Times reported. So the fact that Donald Trump was once open to renominating the Democrat that was once an FCC commissioner, that was a positive sign, but since Congress didn't approve her, he basically said, well, you know what, we couldn't get her, so let's go ahead and opt for the worst possible option. I mean, you may might as well just appoint the CEO of Verizon as the FCC commissioner, because this guy is as big of a shill as you could possibly get. He's a bigger shill than Ajit Pai, and Trump is nominating him in an attempt to get him to fill that seat. And then you got three Republicans. That's a majority on the five seats. And we all know what this means for net neutrality. It means net neutrality may be coming to an end in the United States. So it doesn't matter, in this case, how much we petition the FCC. They're just completely defiant. We've protested. We've done everything we could. We've submitted comments. We've complained. We've tweeted. And they're just not listening to us. Any bureaucracy that makes sweeping changes is required to take into account public feedback, and he's not listening to us. We're telling him, leave the internet the fuck alone, and he's plugging his ears, pretending that, oh yeah, you know, I'm listening to them, but then he has all these fake comments who's saying that they support what he's doing when these are false comments from bots that are using talking points from the industry. So he's not really taking what we're saying into account. Ajit Pai is a traitor to the American people. He is completely sold out to Verizon and AT&T, and then Donald Trump, because he's an idiot who doesn't know what net neutrality is or what it means or what it does, is appointing a bigger shill who's an even bigger sellout to Verizon, who also worked for Verizon, came from the industry, and like a Jeep pie, will go back to the industry once he fucks us all over and guts net neutrality. I don't even know what to do. I mean, the situation at this point, um, it seems hopeless. It seems as though, even though we have all these large companies like Netflix, Reddit, Pornhub, Amazon, all coming to bat for net neutrality, even though polls show that the public supports net neutrality, even though we've submitted millions of comments telling the FCC to leave the internet alone, they're going to do it anyway. Unelected bureaucrats, which the Republicans, you know, they, they complain about unelected bureaucrats and unelected justices all the time. Well, we have a case where basically a couple of unelected bureaucrats are going to destroy the Internet. And it's not like they need Brendan Carr to destroy the Internet. They already have the votes. It's two to one. So what's happening here? This is 
completely unjust. It's unacceptable. This is the will of the people being completely undermined by the industry. Everyone should be outraged about this, but this story, it just can't muster the coverage that Russia musters for some reason. I wonder why that's the case. I wonder if it's because the parent companies of mainstream media outlets like MSNBC, who's the so-called liberal network, isn't talking about it. I mean, it's so frustrating. It feels like the world is against us. And, you know, oftentimes I feel empowered because I know that if we really want to stop lawmakers from doing something, we simply call them and put pressure on them. But this, it's not working in this case. So I don't know what to do at this point. We need everyone in the mainstream media to cover this story so the American people know what's happening because people don't know what's happening. And when they hear about net neutrality, they don't know what net neutrality is because the media hasn't educated them on net neutrality. It's a convoluted issue, but really it's simple. If we got net neutrality, if we do away with net neutrality, we're all screwed. Comcast, Verizon, AT&T get to do what they want, censor your favorite websites, uh, extort your favorite websites, not just on the left, but the right as well. And it seems like there's nothing we can do. So we just have to keep at it. We have to keep pushing. We have to keep submitting comments, calling and complaining because if net neutrality does go the way of the dodo, then we have to at least know that we did everything we could to stop that from happening. I don't want to be complacent. I want us to feel as though we tried our hardest. So at this point, that's all we can do. Hey everyone, so I am here with the host of the Rational National and former Green Party Canadian politician, David Dole. So welcome to the show. Did I say your name right? Yeah, David Dole. David yeah, Dole. It, it's, like, it's like Bob Dole, but spelled differently. <laughs> perfect, perfect. <laughs> um, so you have a YouTube channel right now that's currently exploding. You do phenomenal political commentary. Can you tell us a little bit about your channel and kind of what you talk about? Because I think people that watch my show are going to like your show as well. Yeah. So yeah, I started the channel about a year and a half ago after I ran as a Green Party MP candidate in the 2015 election. Um, I lost, obviously, but <laughs> I wanted to find a a platform to keep talking about progressive policies and really pushing these ideas out there. So I started the Rational National. I kind of posted videos on and off, but then really about a month and a half ago or two months ago, I started being more consistent and really posting every day of the week. And yeah, the channels ballooned over the past over the past two months. And I just try to bring a different perspective in terms of an outsider, somebody not in the U.S., but who is really engaged in U.S. politics, and try to bring that different perspective in and also, what I want to do with the channel is kind of bridge the gap between conservatives and liberals, because I feel there's a lot of, the way we talk to conservatives sometimes, I, th- I think it unfairly puts them down in the sense where it turns them off. So, like, when we just crap on people who, who we don't agree with, what it ends up doing is it actually closes the discussion before it even starts. So, if we have this, this discussion where we're actually open and talking and actually engaging and and why they may think something and not just what they think is wrong, then we can find a way to actually bridge that gap and convince those people who may have just kind of fall down the wrong path and and open them up to newer ideas that they may have not been exposed to initially. That's great. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a great idea. And you still, you find a way to offer progressive commentary while not shitting on, you know, conservatives with it which is actually a difficult thing to do because you know on my show i I tend to get emotional sometimes on it and i'll just 
you know, blurt out names sometimes, which isn't very helpful. So I think that what you're doing is actually pretty helpful. And your commentary is uh, spot on. But I I wanted to get your opinion because you are a Canadian. So you comment on, you know, American politics and whatnot. So once and for all, will you just for all of my socialists and communist viewers, tell them how shitty your healthcare system is in Canada, because they just think that single payer (laughs) is, you know, the end all be all. (laughs) What's it like in Canada for you? Um, I this is the funny thing about about healthcare here that I find so different compared to Americans. I don't think about our healthcare system. So uh, Americans, because they have to get health insurance, because they they have to you know really think about and and compare their options and look at the different insurance companies and, and what they're being offered. I don't think about it. Like when I go to the doctor, I get my health card, which we all have a health card. If you're a citizen, you, all you need is your health card. You go to the doctor. You give them your health card, they're like, cool, you wait for a few minutes, and you go see your doctor, and that's pretty much it. And even if you don't have a family doctor, there's medical clinics, you can just walk in anywhere, they're, they're all around, you just walk in, show them your health card, that's it, you walk out, no discussion, like, it's, it's so, it's so simple that it just, it's, I find that Americans have this, this issue where they're in this bubble, that they're, all they've known is this private insurance system, and when when you're when you grow up in that system, to you it's 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 normal. But with all these other nations, you notice they're adopting when they adopt universal health care, public funded health care, they don't go back to private insurance companies. I mean, there may be the the private public option, but they all have a public health care system in place, and and it's it's so weird that. The discussion doesn't immediately go to, hey, we need Medicare for all. We need single payer. Because look at all these other countries where it's working. Like, uh, this is the one thing that, that I find a lot with Americans. And it's not to crap on American viewers or anything, but oh, a lot of it. Americans. Okay. We deserve it. <laughs> a lot of Americans just, they, they don't see outside their own country. And your country would benefit by looking and seeing what other countries are doing that is working and simply look looking at that and seeing how it, it can adopt how you can adopt those ideas to your own country and it's it's just a matter of, of opening minds and getting these ideas out there and i think bernie sanders did a fantastic job of of doing that bringing these ideas to the forefront that many people hadn't really thought about before many americans hadn't thought about wait our healthcare system is kind of weird why why am i paying a private insurance company and why can I can't I just go to the doctor and see a doctor and then go home without having to worry about all that mess? Um, so it's good that these ideas are now actually starting to get out there. And I think the more people hear about them, the more it's just it's it's convincing that 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 is the way to go. And it's just really just a matter of of time, I think, before Americans do get uh, Medicare for all. It's just a matter of having a government that will actually enact it. Right now, you follow American politics a lot, so you know that. You know, currently, and you talk about the same thing in terms of Democrats, how the Democratic Party were critical of them because they're resistant to change. They're supposed to be the main opposition to Republicans. And uh, I'm not sure if you heard about the California debacle where uh, Anthony mm-hmm. Rendon single-handedly blocked single-payer. So we have a Democratic Party currently that we're trying to fight to get them to move in the right direction towards single-payer. And in your country, so you noticed, you, you, you um, talked about on one of your videos how NDP... Uh, that party is basically realizing that there is a progressive wave and they're kind of changing, unlike the Democratic Party. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So the NDP were 
have always supposed to have been the progressive party. Um, in the last several years, that they they kind of lost their way in terms of at least in terms of the way they message their their um their messaging when that when they ran for for seats. But um, what we've noticed now is so our liberal party, like Justin Trudeau, he's for some reason the media, you know, they they love him, they they talk about him all the time, but they don't. Justin Trudeau, he's a neoliberal. He he's a centrist. He's he's essentially a, a good comparison is Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. So Trudeau ran a progressive message. But he's he's in office and he's essentially he's essentially running a neoliberal um, government. Now, what the NDP have noticed is they've now seen this rise of Bernie Sanders and of Jeremy Corbyn, and they're like, "Hey, look at all this energy behind an actual, real, bold, progressive message." Now, if we adopt that to like to Canada, where there is there's that fervor as well for a real progressive message then we may actually win back some seats and gain some power. So um, right now there's an NDP leadership uh, race going on, and I believe in November they, they end up picking the leader. So there's five candidates, and they're all kind of saying the same message. They're, they're all saying we need to go in a more progressive, more bolder progressive vision and not be afraid of it. Don't be afraid to adopt these policies. Don't be afraid to say that corporations should be taxed more and the rich should be taxed more. And... Don't be afraid to say we need to be more environmentally friendly and, and more aware of what these pipelines are doing to to our to our our world. Um, so they're really learning now from what's gone on around the world and seeing this populist, seeing that a populist message works. And I think it's it's really going to help them. And look, this is coming from a Green Party guy, a guy that ran against the NDP, the Liberals, everybody else. So I I think what NDP doing are smart, and in some ways it'll cut into our base. Because if the NDP adopt a real progressive message, then they're going to people are going to see that hey, I could sure I could vote for for Green Party and grow the Green Party, or I could vote for NDP who actually have a little more power than the Green Party and get these policies adopted sooner rather than later. So what NDP are doing right now are just I think it's brilliant. And what you're saying is I think it it's relevant to America as well because what you said about you know them cutting into the Green Party's base that's what the Democrats can do here. And I know that there are differences. I mean, you're Mm -hmm. in a parliamentary, we're in a presidential system, but we're still majoritarian in that these third parties, they still influence the bigger parties in terms of taking that base away. So I've argued the same thing, basically, that if Democrats are able to move back to the left, they can cut into the green and they don't have to worry about a third party spoiler. Like, you know, I'm sure you've heard about the talk about how Jill Stein is to blame for Hillary Clinton losing and whatnot. And someone, Joanne Reed, who we both really love and admire a lot, talks about this all the time. So it's just moving back to the left is the way that the Democratic Party can win again. And I think that this is what progressives are basically saying and trying to get them to do. But, you know, how successful we are at doing that, you know, it's... It's it's tough to determine yeah. currently. And I, I just want to say I think it's I think it's so ridiculous to blame Green Party voters or Jill Stein voters because this is the reality. If if you don't have Jill Stein as an option, they're just going to stay home. Exactly. I mean, people aren't. There was no nobody is at home contemplating. Hmm. Am I gonna Am I gonna vote for a neoliberal or vote for an extremely left candidate? I mean, I'm sure there's there's a few of those. But the vast majority of people that vote green vote green because they believe in those ideas. And it, the fact that the Hillary campaign moved to the center during, during the general election, thinking that there were all these centrists who were going to vote for her, all these neoliberals in the country, 
they realized no there's none of those people that the actual the actual voters the majority of people that don't vote they don't vote because there aren't those ideas out there that are exciting them they're they're having they're being given a reason to actually vote so i mean for everything hillary did from picking tim kane as her vp from from not campaigning where she should have for not campaigning on a on a real progressive message I mean, there were so many mistakes that she made not reaching out to the progressive base that that which is that that's what cost her the election. And mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, there are all different other factors. You can blame a million other, other things. But I think the main reason that Hillary lost is because she tried to go after Republican and centrist voters and realize those people aren't really there. Yeah, exactly. And what you're kind of saying, um, it speaks to a different, a, a recent election, albeit a different election, between John Ossoff and Karen Handel in Georgia's 6th District, where it's, a, you know, traditionally this district has gone to Republicans for decades. So Democrats thought, well, what we, sh what we should do in this district is we should run someone who's relatively conservative because since it's a conservative district, we'll win. Now, I've argued against that, and you've also argued against that, but why do you think they shouldn't be more conservative? in these conservative districts so this is the argument i make in one of my videos about this race the so the, the conventional wisdom coming out of the, of that election was that voter turnout was really high it was fantastic it was 46 percent 46 percent like you're supposed to be impressed by 46 percent 54 percent of people didn't vote why didn't they vote because they didn't have an they didn't have an option that they wanted to vote for. They didn't see ideas out there that they wanted to vote for. So the conventional wisdom is you have all these very conservative areas that would never vote for, for a liberal. I see comments on my videos all the time on people like Nina Turner saying, I'm a conservative, but I would vote for this woman because I believe in the message that she's delivering. They don't care what your label is. And, and really, it, the ones, the, the only actual detriment to John Ossoff in terms of in terms of the label of Democrat, is being attached to someone like Nancy Pelosi, someone who people who voters realize they don't they don't like Nancy Pelosi, they don't like that establishment um, view of the Democratic Party, they don't want to support that. So if, if John Ossoff is being sold as someone who's attached to Nancy Pelosi, then he's status quo. He's he's a he's a moderate. He's a centrist, and I don't want to vote for that. So you have these candidates actually have to reach out to this progressive base. These people that don't normally vote and give them an actual reason to vote with a real bold message. And I think part of it, too, is people have to believe in that message. And part of believing in that message is having a campaign that isn't run on corporate money. And I think that's that's what a lot of great um, that's what Justice Democrats, for example, are, are trying to do, trying to run candidates who who aren't taking corporate money, who aren't taking PAC money. And I think that would go a long way into improving these candidates' chances of actually winning these elections. So I'm hoping to see uh, Justice Democrats and other similar groups come out and and show a real improvement in, in 2018 and, and show that these candidates running on a, on a bold progressive message and not taking PAC money can actually win these elections. Right. That's what I'm hoping for as well. Now, the thing about you mentioned about how they tied John Ossoff to Nancy Pelosi. What they don't realize is that that doesn't just hurt you know the candidate when it comes to the republican voters that hurts them among democratic voters as well because i don't like yeah. nancy pelosi you know i'm progressive exactly. she's status quo she doesn't want to go in the direction of single payer so it's just it's frustrating you know being in america and um i 
it, it seems simple. The solution is simple, but they're not listening and they don't want to listen. So it, it's frustrating. And then you have people on the mainstream media reinforcing everything that they're doing wrongly. I mean, someone uh, like Joanne Reed, for example, which I wanted to um, have you kind of comment on Joanne Reed because you and I have some strong thoughts on Joanne Reed. <laughs> And her corporatism yeah. and just, you know, being a propagandist yeah. for the Democratic Party. So you have some epic rants on Joanne Reed. I'm, I'm going to encourage all my viewers to go to your channel and watch those rants because that's basically what sold me on your channel. Um, just <laughs> fantastic uh, Joanne Reed rants. So do you have any comments on Joanne Reed? And, you know, what she's doing is actually harmful in terms of getting the Democratic Party to change. But she's kind of telling them you're doing everything right. So don't change a thing. Yeah. So this is why I, I go out after someone like Joanne Reed because... She has real pull. There are people that watch MSNBC who think Joanne Reed is a progressive. And they think that what she's taught what she's saying is is based on facts and and makes sense. But Joanne Reed is the reason she angers me so much is because she comes off as somebody who actually has this deep hate for Bernie Sanders. And I don't understand why. I mean, you can have criticisms about, you know, Chris Hayes or Rachel Maddow or, or whoever else is on MSNBC, but they don't actively hate on progressive politicians. They don't actively hate on Bernie Sanders. Joy Reid actively hates Bernie Sanders, and it drives me nuts. So, yeah, I have some I have one rant on there was it was just supposed to be meant for my patrons, but then after I shot it, I realized this is actually a good video, <laughs> so I, <laughs> I put it on I put it on YouTube. But yeah, she has these moments where I mean, so after the Ossoff loss, all, all she's doing is, is defending, defending the Democrats, defending why they lost. But when you had the, the more progressive candidate, and I believe it was Montana who lost, all she did was she, she, she all of a sudden turned into this person saying, oh, this proves that a, a progressive message can't work because this one guy who was attached to Bernie Sanders ran this one progressive race and lost. Meanwhile, the Democrats have lost a thousand seats since what, 20, uh, 2009? Yeah. So this is, I mean, the comparison is nuts. You can't have, you can't just have one loss in a, prog in a progressive race and say that the progressive message is dead. You can't, you can't run this way. You need to actually push this and it needs to be supported by the Democratic Party. Because if it's just, if it's just these, these individuals trying to get up there and trying to get their voice out, but they don't have the actual money and the support behind them to actually push that message out there then you're you're pushing them out there without a real a real support and base to be able to actually succeed. So until there's a real uh, support base for these progressive candidates, then there won't be a real test to see if they can actually win. And people like Joanne Reed continue pushing this conventional wisdom and masking it as progressivism when it's not. And my hope is that people will, you know, search up Joanne Reed or search up MSNBC. And come across our videos and see, oh wait, they actually make good points. Joanne Reed is not telling me the truth. And maybe it'll change their mind on on how they feel about about MSNBC or about certain people on those networks. Right. And you know the thing that bothers me about, you know, Joanne Reed basically doing apologetics for the neoliberals who lose and, you know, blaming progressives for being progressive when they lose is that when you look at, you know, or when you compare Rob Quist and James Thompson to John Ossoff, for example, I mean, the Democratic Party, you know, the National Party basically surrendered those races. The DNC and the DCCC, they largely ignored them. Uh, James Thompson, certainly, until the last day, basically. So yeah. you, you can't really, unless the National Party invests in progressives, they're still handicapped because they 
don't have that that you know the funding from the national party and they're taking no corporate money so they're handicapped they're at a disadvantage so i i don't think you can even compare john ossoff to rob quist um so it is frustrating you know when she goes out there and says well it's because of the progressive message that's that's a really intellectually lazy argument to make i mean you have to be nuanced there you have to understand the differences so yeah and she also sorry she also made the argument that because the state was white that it was the best chance for Bernie Sanders to win. She keeps attaching Bernie Sanders to white people. Bernie Sanders has a working class message, a message really for everyone. It's not about white people. I don't know why Joy keeps thinking that white people are Bernie's most uh, biggest supporters. When you look at polling, African-Americans are the high, are his highest support base. Because, I mean, using your brain, you could just know liberals tend to be, uh, African-Americans tend to be more liberal than mm-hmm. white people. So when you have... So the idea that Bernie had or a Bernie type candidate has the best chance in in a whiter state is just insane. I mean, the, you have to go watch my video, but I, I break down the, her, her arguments for, for why that for why um, she thought Montana was the perfect uh, state for, for a Bernie candidate to win and ended up losing. But um, anyways, I could go over. I can go on and on about Joanne Reed. She is just uh, she's got a screw loose or something. I don't <laughs> I can't I can't explain her anger towards Bernie Sanders, especially when you go back and you see a tweet of hers from, I believe it was 2010, and she was praising him. Yeah. So what happened between then and now? I, it's it's really interesting. And that's the question that I'm asking about a bunch of people who I previously looked up to. I mean, uh, Bill Maher, for example, is someone who was a comedian who I respected, and I, I watched his show every single week because I thought that his analyses, even though I didn't agree with them 100% of the time, he had some good things to say that was actually different. I mean, he wasn't pushing Democratic Party orthodoxy, but once Hillary Clinton becomes the Democratic Party nominee, all of a sudden, you know, he's team Democrat, rah, rah. He has zero criticism yeah. for them, you know, and, and when he does criticize them after they've fucked up and lost a thousand seats it's a really tepid criticism you know so there's so many people that i used to look up to that i no longer do and i think this is why independent media shows like yours uh like mine they've just exploded over the course of the last year or so because you know this this mainstream um it's almost like a cult where you have to be part of the cool kids club the democratic party and we yeah. like we're not you know we're not there anymore especially millennials like we're just we're not on board with neoliberalism and corporatism and it's time that everyone in the mainstream media wake the fuck up before people like us overtake them um yeah. so and yeah I, I think i think this is a major issue with with mainstream media and what separates us from mainstream media is we can actually we have introspection on liberals and on the democratic party and can actually are able to criticize what they do wrong. And that that builds an audience that, you know, they trust us because we're being honest with them. We're not hiding all the faults of the Democratic Party. We're talking we're, we're talking about them out in the open. And when you have people in media, in mainstream media, covering for the Democratic Party, people see through that. People know you you aren't being honest with them. But when you actually are able to criticize both parties and talk about how money is the most corrupting influence in Washington, then People, they they trust us because they know that's true. And, I mean, that's the secret message. If mainstream media talks more about the influence of corporate money, they won't do that because they are influencing <laughs> the politicians. But if they talk more about that and we're open about criticizing the party that they identify with, then they would be able to retain their audience. But they're slowly losing an audience because people are seeing right through them. Right. They just, they lack objectivity. 
Yeah. Um, and one thing that I wanted to ask you about, because I don't know if you've received the same criticism, is that in criticizing Democrats, there's this implication that we are pro-Republican or pro-conservative. So yeah. what do you say to that about people that say, well, you know, you're critical of the Democratic Party, but look at the Republicans. You know, why are you criticizing Democrats when the Republican Party is so extreme? Shouldn't you focus all your energy on Republicans? What do you say to that personally? So this is the, the way I look at it. If we're going to criticize Republicans, I, I have no problem with criticizing Republicans. But if you're going to criticize them, then what what are you offering in return? Because if the Democratic Party isn't a party to that actually represents um, a real, honest voice, then you can't just criticize the Republican Party because then people, I mean, they see through that. They they realize, wait, but both parties have the issue with corporate money. Why are you just criticizing Republicans on this? So it's that sort of idea where, sure, you can cri- you can criticize Republicans, but if you're not giving anybody an alternate, uh, a legitimate, real option that that actually represents the voices of real people then there's no real message there and you have to you have to be able to criticize both sides because you want we want to make the democratic party better i mean that's why i talk that's why i talk about the democratic party that's why i criticize them because i want them to improve i want people democratic voters and 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 liberals to to push the party in the right direction so that they can actually win seats back and push a real message that represents real people and not just and not just the rich and and corporations. So I think it's it's important to have it's important to have that that objectivity to really improve the party that we that are that is supposed to be the progressive party or supposed to be the liberal party. Right, right. Now, one thing that I wanted to touch on really quickly is because since you're a Canadian, I don't know if you've had any pushback. Whenever I talk about, you know, uh, UK politics or some other country, I get pushback saying, well, you, you know, you're an American, you, you shouldn't be talking about this. I don't know if you receive the same pushback with respect to America, but I actually think that your voice is really important um, because that outsider perspective it's, it's great because it, it prevents us from remaining in an echo chamber and just hearing, you know, our own voices. So I, I do think that your voice is um, it's necessary. Um, I forgot the point that I was going to make with respect. Yeah, to- well, uh, um, it was about uh, how people react to to uh, me being Canadian and talking about American politics. I noticed. So there are some comments about people um, or from people who who say, oh, you're Canadian. Don't talk about Americans. But I'm actually surprised how little that comes up. And I read the majority of the comments that that appear in my channel. I'm luckily that channel is young enough that I can. But th- there isn't there isn't a lot of that. So I think as long as people know you're being honest with them and you're not trying to hide who you are and and you're honest with your message and what you believe in, then people are open to taking criticism no matter where it comes from, um, as long as it's based in honesty and and based in fact. And one thing that I wanted to emphasize is that. As a Canadian, you do have a stake in American politics, and I think that a lot of people out that are outside the U.S., they have a stake in it because you made a point in one of your videos that I thought was fantastic was you talked about how the United States influences the policies of all other countries, basically, and yeah. they influence Canada as well. Um, so did you want to talk about how that's the case in terms of any specific policies, if you had any? Yeah, so um, the, the one I go I always go back to because I'm a big advocate of of psychedelic medicine is in 1971, I believe it was 71. Um, the U.S. pushed uh, at the United Nations. They pushed an idea to ban all all psychedelic medicines and all all drugs like marijuana, everything. So there were all these studies being done on 
on LSD and psilocybin mushrooms and these these various psychedelics that were they were finding it was benefiting people. But because the the U.S. pushed for this ban at the U.N., all these countries banned it. And so we have this gap of like 50 years where there wasn't proper research being done into into um, psychedelic medicines like like ayahuasca, like uh, mushrooms, like MDMA, all these psychedelics that have a connection to the benefits to benefiting people that have PTSD, anxiety, depression. Um, I have a personal experience with ayahuasca. So I, I went to Peru a couple of years ago. I did ayahuasca and it helped me immensely with, with depression. And the idea that the U.S. can can push these, these, these ideas at the U.N. and all these other countries adopt it, it's proof that the U.S. has a massive impact on the world. And that's why... I mean, I do have a personal connection to to uh, the U.S.'s impact on on policy around the world, and we notice that. And I mean, there's a reason why the U.S. is a superpower. It's not just, I mean, it's not just Americans that think that. We all, all around the world, we all we all realize the U.S. has a very integral role in in the world. So it so whatever the U.S. whatever the U.S. pushes, whether it's in terms of war or or certain policies. It does affect the rest of the world because there's a major impact in in what you do on on us, right? And one one other issue that I notice is uh, I talk about net neutrality pretty frequently on my channel, and I'll see comments from international viewers saying, "Please don't do this, America, because then my country's going to want to do it." Um, yeah. I think it was a UK viewer that actually said that. Um, I'm not sure though, but uh, you know, I constantly see this feedback from international viewers saying, you know, great, now my country is going to do this after the United States implements this specific policy. So yeah, I, I think that people do have a stake. And furthermore, I mean, we're neighbors, so I think that you should be able to criticize on it. And like I said, the outsider perspective, I think is not just something that's appreciated, but I think it's necessary because people like you can say, hey, single payer, it's not it's pretty good, actually. You know, it's not as yeah. horrible yeah. as they like to fearmonger about. Yeah. I think that that's really, really important. Um, so let me just—I want to make a, one last pitch to my viewers to go and check out your channel because it's great. So I've been—I've been told that my channel, The Humanist Report, is the gay version of Secular Talk. I'm dubbing <laughs> the Rational National, the Canadian version of The Humanist Report. So we all kind of play <laughs> off each good. other in different ways. Um, <laughs> so do you want to make one last pitch, or um, you know, to just kind of go over some topics that you typically talk about on your channel? Because again, I really think that if you, if you watch the humanist report there's a lot of topics that uh, that overlap and you know we, we cover the same thing and I think that for the most part we we agree on a lot I don't know if we agree on everything yeah, because we, yeah. you know you haven't I, I haven't heard your opinion on everything but I mean you you offer a great perspective so I mean do you just want to give one last pitch before we uh, we go yeah sure yeah if you're looking for an outsider perspective a, a progressive perspective a perspective of someone that wants to bridge the gap between conservatives and liberals then check out my channel uh, mm -hmm. Uh, youtube.com slash the rational national uh, on twitter i'm at david dole d-o-e-l and uh yeah just check it out see if you like it uh and throw me a comment let me know what you think all right perfect and one last thing i'll ask you is there is a neoliberal troll on well, actually i don't know if it's a troll on twitter who made this gigantic graphic i'll put it up on the screen had a bunch of people's faces saying, you know, these mm. people, sh these are progressives that should be in prison for what they did. I saw that, yeah. <laughs> I was excluded, you were excluded. I don't know how pissed you were, but I was pretty offended that I also am not a thug that deserves to be in prison. <laughs> well, so I, 
I'm I'm fairly new still, so I, I don't think I expected to be on there. But yeah, you should have been on there. <laughs> I should be in prison, right? <laughs> you should be in prison. You should go to jail for for pushing a, a loving progressive message out there. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I was pissed off. You know, it's just one of those things where, man, I I thought I was a thug that deserved prison time, but apparently not. <laughs> Maybe next time you will. Maybe next time we'll see. I did tweet to yeah. that person and tell them to exclude me or to include me, excuse me, and not to exclude me. So yeah. we'll see if that works. And hopefully you could get on the list as well because i feel like I'm looking it's an forward honor. to it. yeah all my friends are on there what the hell man yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right david well, thanks so much for coming on the show all right thanks for having me on that's all i've got for you guys today i want to thank you all for tuning in i want to send a special shout out to the patreon patrons and the members on humanistreport.com you guys are so crucial to the show's existence i can't even tell you you help us not just to survive but also to thrive and I can't thank you enough, and I'm going to thank you every single week, even though I sound like a broken record, but you guys are phenomenal. So thank you all for tuning in so loyally each week, and if you made it this far in the episode, thank you for caring about the issues enough to hear me out and hear what I have to say, because I think that I'm trying to cover things more in depth, so I'm, I'm focusing more on this episode, at least on on quality rather than quantity, and trying to, you know, even though I'm doing less issues and covering less issues and producing less segments i'm trying to really dive deeper into the issues um and i you know it's not that i i I don't try to cover topics in a more nuanced way but i think that you know um if i just do more lengthier segments we'll see how that works out and maybe if there's something that comes up during the week i'll just do an impromptu video uh not part of the podcast but yeah you know let's um let's continue pushing through and we'll keep covering the issues and uh yeah So I'll see you all next week. It's very hot in this room right now. Uh, I've got the ACC going. If you're wondering what that buzzing sound is. And I feel like my brain is melting. So I'm going to get out of here. You guys have a great weekend.